The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street on record watch as one small sector of the market looks to do something for the first time in 34 years. Back on board, key Republican senators signaled their support for President Biden's infrastructure deal after some weekend backlash. Back to the office, at least part-time, one major international bank out with its plan to bring people back to the office, breaking with their Wall Street counterparts along the way. Cloudy skies for Boeing as regulators flag new issues for what's becoming the company's most popular long-haul jet. And call it a crypto winter. What one top analyst at J.P. Morgan is saying about the near-term future of Bitcoin? It is Monday, June 28, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off your Monday morning. We'll look at stock futures where we are looking at slightly higher on this Monday. The Dow basically flat. S&P 500 up about five and the Nasdaq higher by 42 points in pre-market trade. Now, stocks are coming off a mixed session Friday that had the S&P 500 break through a new all time high for the second consecutive day. The index up. 14% this year for its best first half in two years. Not to be outdone by transports, also seeing a breakout. The sector up 20% year to date and on pace for its first best first half since 1997. Small caps, a really big part of the conversation, up another 5% last week and on pace for its longest monthly win streak on record going back to 1987. Part of the move has to do with what we're seeing in the bond market. Let's take a look at the 10-year yield, we are yielding 1.51% at this hour. Now to some of top morning stories at this hour. Uh, UBS reportedly plans to allow up to two-thirds of its staff to mix working from home and at the office on a permanent basis. According to multiple reports, the move to embrace a hybrid model is led by bank CEO Ralph Hammers and underlines a stark difference with U.S. counterparts J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, which have all ordered staff in New York back to the office. And a new report says China's cyber strength is at least a decade behind that of the U.S., according to the International Institute for Strategic Studies. China's strength as a cyber power are being undermined by poor security and weak intelligence analysis. As a result, only the U.S. is ranked as a top-tier cyber power by the think tank. China, Russia, the U.K., Australia— Canada, France, and Israel were in the second tier. And Goldman Sachs chief economist Jan Hasius joining the transitory inflation camp in a new note to clients over the weekend. Hasius says price supply constrained categories are likely to remain firm for at least a couple more months, but will eventually become a one-off disinflationary drag. Hasius adds he expects core PC inflation to fall to 3% by end of 2021 and 2% by end of 2022. 
Sticking with the markets, despite a rocky start to the first half of the year, your next guest says the rotation into growth likely persists. Joining me now is Fairlead Strategies founder and managing partner, Katie Stockton. Katie, good morning. Good morning to you. You know, the prominent argument for investing in growth stocks is this is a sector that has strong revenue growth. And we're also we're in a part of the economy where a time in the economy where consumers and businesses are starting to widen their budgets and spend more on technology products. But so far this year, growth has underperformed. Uh, but in recent weeks, we've seen it uh, bounce back. So I'm wondering what you think accounts for this this change in tone. Well, we recently upgraded both technology and consumer discretionary with the feeling that the reversals that we have seen at least have an intermediate term shelf life. So we're talking about maybe two, three months, not fully convinced it's going to last beyond that because we did see a pretty major reversal down favoring value over growth late last year. However, we've seen momentum really shift over the short term, and they're mostly rising off of this intermediate term oversold condition, and that positions them very well from a relative perspective. Of course, we have seen rotation back into sort of mega caps like Amazon and Microsoft. These names have really exhibited upside leadership of late. I think the NASDAQ 100 index excuse me, is up almost six weeks in a row now. So we've really seen a shift in terms of momentum behind these mega caps that can really drive the major indices. I guess that's where my next question will go to then. I mean, if technology is where investors should be putting their money, is it going to be just led by the big five, the Amazon, Apples and uh, Netflixes of the world, if you will, uh, and Alphabet? Or are there is there an opportunity to look at some of the smaller mid cap names within technology? Well, to the mega caps point, the breakouts there are real. So we're seeing good breakouts across the board, aside from Amazon, which I think we're all sort of scrutinizing the near-term price action there. If we did see Amazon clear its highs, I think that would be a major breakout for it. So certainly something to watch for as a nice positive catalyst, more broadly speaking. But we've already seen a breakout in Netflix above its 200-day moving average. Apple pushed out of it a triangle formation. These breakouts do suggest that they'll continue to exhibit upside leadership, but it doesn't mean it has to be completely narrow. In fact, if you look at breadth measures or measures of market participation, things like the cumulative advanced decline line for NYSE stocks, still very much in long-term uptrends. The pullback that we saw into the previous week preceding uh, last week was an oversold reading that we hadn't seen since the May low. So these short-term oversold readings within long-term uptrends in breadth suggest that we can actually see broad participation even when we're getting the leadership from those mega caps. And then broad participation. What does that mean for other sectors like industrials and energy that have played such a big role in driving the stock market higher this year, Katie? Well, we've seen pullbacks in the cyclical sectors, and I think those are healthy. It's always hard to buy pullbacks, right, because it feels like you've seen this loss of momentum. But indeed, a lot of these metrics sort of or measures fell right into their sort of short-term support zones. In some cases, especially in financials, a lot of them pulled right back to breakout points and they became short-term oversold there. So I do think that we'll at least see stabilization in those cyclical sectors. Energy may be out of favor a bit. We've noticed crude oil has held up 
very, very well within the commodity complex. If you contrast it with something like lumber, right? Uh, it does look poised for consolidation, not a dramatic correction of that nature like lumber has seen, but we're looking for the energy sector to kind of fall out of favor here in the near term as we get that more growthy rotation. Yeah, we haven't had seen that yet. Energy among the biggest gainers last week, uh, but interesting forecast there. Katie, thank you for your time. Katie Stockton. And when we come back, we reveal the top concerns among global corporate leaders in CNBC's latest CFO Council survey. Plus, the latest out of Florida as the death toll rises following that apartment building collapse. A live report ahead. And later, why Bitcoin enthusiasts could be bracing for a crypto winter and what that means. A very busy hour still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's look at markets right now. The Dow currently up just fractionally on the day. NASDAQ higher by 37 points after hitting a record high last week. That is your pre-market trade right now. NASDAQ gainers right now. Let's take a look. It will be led by Marvel Technology, Baidu, Micron, which does report earnings this week, NVIDIA, and Moderna. Still on deck, why our next guest says F9's blockbuster weekend is much more than just a movie for an industry desperate to get back on track. Today's big number, 52.9%. That's the drop in total worldwide ocean cruise revenue from 2019, according to Cruise Market Watch. That's 13.9 million annualized passengers carried, roughly half pre-pandemic levels. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. CNBC is out with its latest global CFO Council survey, revealing the top concerns inside the C-suite. Our own Christina Parsonevelis breaks down the results. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Seema. So we talk about transitory or not, but inflation nation is still a major concern for CFOs from some of the biggest firms around the globe. Our quarterly CNBC survey conducted earlier this June shows that although COVID risks are top of mind, inflation is the next biggest risk factor for these financial leaders. So let's take a look first at this stark contrast from just a year ago when inflation was not even mentioned as a concern. And now almost 20 percent of CFOs are thinking about it. You can see the yellow on your screen right there that shoots up. Although we surveyed CFOs from an array of industries, the vast majority predict that the consumer discretionary sector will the biggest growth over the next six months. Specifically in the APAC region, nearly half of those CEOs think the healthcare sector has the most to gain. And then financials are also currying favor across the board. 
And it's time to show face. As companies slowly return their workforce, nearly half of all CFOs say they will be in person first, heading into the second half of 2021. Looks like they will keep dishing out the dough. 61% plan to spend some extra cash renovating existing workspaces. And it's not just renovations burning a hole. 51% of CFOs never expect their company budget for employee travel to return to pre-pandemic levels. So Ubers, car service, and company shuttles, anyone? Overall, because of these higher input costs, think raw materials and labor, most CFOs at 34% say their companies will have to increase prices. And we've come full circle because no wonder these CFOs surveyed are increasingly worried about the raising cost of goods. And especially now that many of them even said that they're going to be passing that on to consumers. Not information we really want to hear, but... Seems like inflation is still top of mind. Back to you, Sima. Yeah, and it's such a great point. We already heard that last season, from last earnings season from Whirlpool to Chipotle, but clearly from this survey, it's a trend that will continue. Thank you for bringing us that survey, Christina. We'll see you later. Thank you. All right, now, now to a developing story this morning. We're going to now go to a news update from Francis Rivera. Hi, Francis. Good morning to you. Uh, Just a few hours ago, uh, the United States launched airstrikes in the Middle East. The Pentagon says the three targets in these strikes were weapons storage facilities, two in Syria and one in Iraq, near the border shared by those countries. And they were chosen because those facilities were used by Iran-backed militias that conducted drone attacks against U.S. personnel in Iraq. The Pentagon added that President Biden directed this military action to disrupt and deter future attacks. Mr. Biden did not respond to questions about these airstrikes as he returned from Camp David. Extreme heat is scalding the western United States. At least 25 million people remain under heat alerts this morning. The Olympic track and field trials in Oregon were put on hold after temperatures hit 107 degrees. And temps on the track measured in at nearly 150 degrees. Some athletes were taken off the field in wheelchairs due to the heat, including Talia Brooks. Drivers, start your lawnmowers. The British Lawnmower Racing Championships return this weekend following an 18-month hiatus due to the pandemic. The vehicles, which include traditional lawnmowers and lawn tractors, have souped up engines, but the cutting blades, they're removed for safety reasons. The races take place on various weekends from June to October. SEMA for Monday morning. Those are your headlines. Francis, thank you so much for that. Now, turning to the box office, the weekend box office uh, in the latest film in the Fast and Furious saga, F9 dominating over the weekend, grossing $70 million. That is the highest opening weekend since the pandemic began and the best weekend since 2019 Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. But for my next guest, F9 is much more than just a movie. Joining me now is Comscore senior media analyst, Paul. Uh, it's great to see you. Why, tell us why you think F9 was such a hit over the weekend. Why should I go and watch it? Well, I, I think it's the ultimate popcorn movie. They say, you know, for some movies you need to sus- uh, suspend disbelief. And I think for this one, you really have to do that. And look, people have been cooped up at home for for some maybe over a year, not able to go out and enjoy those communal activities. And going to a movie theater is one of those things that just baked into our DNA. We love going out to the movies. And to put this in perspective, about a year ago, according to our Comscore data, there were around 1,000 theaters open in North America. Now there are over 4,600 theaters open, which represents about 80% of available movie theaters are open right now. So when Universal moved the release date of Furious 9 from 2020 to 2021, 
they really picked a good date here because you have vaccinations increasing. You have people wanting to get out of the house. You have more theaters available. You've had some big movies already released. A Quiet Place 2, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And so that's that has been leading up to this with all that momentum and people wanting to go out of the house and watch a movie on the big screen. It's really paying off big for Hollywood. And that's good news for an industry that was really sidelined for about a year. Yeah, over F9, a year. they got the timing right, as you just said. I'm just curious if you take a step back and look at demand for movies in general at the theater. Yeah. Um, What's it been like? Is it met your expectations? Has it been less or more than what you were expecting as states open up and more people get out there? You know, it's been, I, I would say, about as good as you could hope for, even better, really. I mean, if you were going to you know, write up a blueprint for what the recovery, the road to recovery has been for movie theaters, you know, you go back to Godzilla versus Kong just a few months ago, that propelled the industry to a then high uh, overall weekend. And as time has gone on, we've just seen all these big movies, some of which going day and date, meaning in theaters and on streaming at the same time, but still doing well at the movie theater. There was this idea uh, by many over the past few months that the movie theater would not recover from this, that having so much great content at home, and it is great to have all those streaming services, but there's just something about the communal an immersive nature of a movie theater that just can't be replicated anywhere else. And I think that's really held the industry in good stead. And we're looking forward to a lot of big movies on the horizon. Fourth mm -hmm. of July weekend is going to be key. And then right. after that, you have Black Widow opening. Then down the road, you have James Bond and Top Gun. A lot of great movies in the pipeline. Just hope we can keep this momentum going. So if this weekend is any indication, that's going to happen. You think, uh, given the success of F9 and Quiet Place 2, that more uh, more than big releases that are coming up will not skip the theaters. They won't go straight to Netflix like Kevin Hart did with his newest movie, Fatherhood, which, by the way, has done very well on Netflix. Well, that's right. I mean, look, you can have success on the small screen and the big screen, but I think you're going to see a lot of studios rethinking their strategies. A lot of studios move to that streaming day and date uh model. But now I think they're looking at A Quiet Place 2, which was a theatrical first release, as is Furious 9. And they're going to look at that and say, maybe theatrical first is the way to go. Dynamic windows are here to stay, obviously. Shorter windows than the traditional 90 days. But that being said, irrespective of the window, movies like Furious 9, A Quiet Place 2, and others have proven that people really want to go to the movie theater. And that's just not in North America, but around the world as well, uh, our data showing that oh, Furious 9 Comscore showed over $405 million banked worldwide hmm. for Furious 9. So this is not just a, a North American phenomenon. This is a global play for all the students. So if demand is so strong, at what point do the theater chains just raise prices? I mean, we've already seen that happen. And if you're trying to book a flight right now, if you're getting fast yeah. food, going to the grocery store, when do the theater chains take advantage of this uh, strong demand? Well, I think right now it's about getting patrons back in the theater. So obviously pricing, people are price sensitive right now, obviously, but there are these uh, businesses like the movie theater, like travel and others that are raising prices because of this big demand. But I think right now, let's stay the course. Let's just keep uh, people coming into the theater, give them a reason to come back. It's already a value uh, added proposition. I think going to the movie theater even at prices that people do complain about sometimes, it's still a bargain for getting out of the house. And look, you get to go, well, I don't want to give anything away, but into outer space, 
in Furious 9 for just a few bucks. So how do you beat that, really? Given your enthusiasm, I feel like going to theater now, and I haven't been to one, one in uh, at least 18 months. All right, you and me. There we go. Paul, thank All you right, for joining us. Paul, thank you. <laughs> and Bye. straight ahead, from Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the eco-friendly shoe that's looking to give retail investors a piece of the action. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Stocks getting set to close out a quarter for the record books as futures point to modest gains. Bracing for a crypto crash, what JP Morgan is telling clients about a coming crypto winter. And a C-suite shakeup at a global luxury clothing brand has that stock going out of style. It is Monday, June 28, 2021, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. If you're just waking up with us, good morning. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Here's how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Modest gains for the Dow and the S&P. The Nasdaq, you can see, up by around 40 points in extended trade. Quick Monday morning sector check. Uh, take a look at small caps on pace for their longest monthly win streak since 1987. S&P 500 healthcare stocks, they're coming off a record close. Communication services trading at its highest level since 2000. And keep an eye on energy on pace for its longest monthly gain since its eighth month winning streak in April of 2011 as oil continues to outperform. To some of these morning's top morning stories, Republican Senator Rob Portnoy says he is prepared to move forward with President Biden's infrastructure deal after clarification from the White House that Biden will sign the bill even if it does not come with a reconciliation package. The president has said last week that he would refuse to sign the deal unless the two bills were delivered in tandem, something that caught Republican leadership off guard. The FDA is late Friday, says it is adding a warning to go along with the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines to indicate a rare risk of heart inflammation. In a statement, the FDA says the risks still appear to be very low given the number of doses already administered and that the benefit of COVID-19 vaccination continues to outweigh the risks. And direct-to-consumer shoe brand Allbirds reportedly tapping banks, including Morgan Stanley, for an initial public offering. According to a report, the brand has confidentially submitted its listing documents to the SEC and is seeking to go public as soon as September. Now to a developing story this morning in Surfside, Florida, the site of that deadly apartment building collapse. Five days after the event, the death toll rising to nine over the weekend. Crews continue to pour through the debris, searching for the more than 150 people still missing. And answers about how it happened. NBC's Jay joins us now with live from the scene uh, just outside Miami Beach. Jay, good morning. Hey, Seema, good morning to you. you know, that frantic search for survivors really began just moments after the building fell to the ground. And it's only stopped once since then. That was yesterday as family members, loved ones of those still missing got their first up-close look at the devastation. Teams are still pulling away pieces of the crumbled high-rise. As they pick up those large pieces of debris, it allows for a whole other round of, uh, of the, the dogs that make the rounds that look for survivors and allow those, those paramedics that are embedded with the team, those surgeons that are embedded in the team, uh, those engineers embedded with the teams in order to do their jobs. A job that continues around the clock, 
because these heroes understand time, like the elements, is an enemy. We have heard taps. We have heard falling. We have heard twisting metal. We hear sounds all the time. The Noriega family hasn't heard from their 92-year-old grandmother since the collapse. I fell to my knees just in realization that my grandmother was in that building. But as they rushed in, they did get what they consider a message, finding images and items from her apartment in the debris. It would be a miracle to bring her out alive. It would be a miracle of the ages. And if my grandmother's soul's in heaven, then I know that she's with Jesus. And either way, she's good. So we have found comfort in that. Comfort, or at least some understanding, is what dozens of families search for as they're allowed a closer look at the site Sunday. Toys pulled from the wreckage, along with messages of hope, line the sidewalk, a memorial of sorts, not far from this fence, covered with pictures of the more than 150 still missing here. And a little more on the investigation now. Engineers, other experts continue to focus on the bottom of the 13-story tower and the possibility of a structural failure either in or below the underground parking garage, Seema. That could be the reason for this deadly collapse. Understood. Jay, you know, the effort there is still officially a rescue mission from what I understand. Do we have any indication of when that could switch yeah. to a recovery? Look, everyone here wants to continue to hope, and they do as they work through what they're doing here, but they also understand that time is not on their side. And, and now we're starting to see some more heavy equipment move in. So that's going to be a slow transition. No one wants to say we're officially uh, moving to a recovery, but, but it's happening. It's just going to happen over the next several days. Jay, we're also hearing reports of a team of Israelis who have come in to assist first-hand responders. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah, amazing group that traveled over here to help with this recovery and rescue, a team that's highly trained and has been in these type of situations before. They got on the ground here, went straight to work, and they'll continue to do that, they say, for as long as they're needed here. But really providing not only help on the ground, but help as far as experience and knowing how to handle this. So it's been amazing to see them interact with the crews on the ground here. Yeah, of course, they need the help there. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for your time. Jay Gray. Back to markets here as we take a look at what's going on with Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto crew bouncing higher this Monday morning. Bitcoin higher by 6%. This after yet another investment bank analyst threw some cold water on the crowd. In a note to clients, JP Morgan says Bitcoin's biggest problem isn't a crackdown by China on cryptocurrencies or Elon Musk's snarky tweets. It's money leaving the asset class and a continued lack of interest from institutional investors. But your next guest looks to take issue with that conclusion. Michael Casey is chief content officer at Coindesk and a former MIT Media Lab Digital Currency Initiative senior advisor. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Um, the volatility that we've seen um, in this asset class, you say it's not stopping institutional investors from holding cryptocurrencies. Tell us why. Uh, hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Um, look, yeah, I'm just sort of anecdotal evidence that there are uh, family offices, uh, there are uh, endowments, there are others, you know, who are looking and have been sort of exploring and studying this asset class for some time. And the volatility is just part of the course. I mean, it, it is, you know, an unfortunate sort of reality, if you like, of, of how something like Bitcoin is introduced to the world. And inevitably, it's going to have this, this volatility. 
And so you've got a number of institutions that continue to look at that, understand that, and are figuring out how to work it into their portfolios. That's certainly uh, you know what, what what institutional traders and others are, are telling us. But I think it's also important to look at what's happening on the sort of the broader investment side. I mean, there's been phenomenal amount of investment in the servicing aspect of the crypto industry. Uh, you know, Andreessen Horowitz just last week announced a $2.2 billion crypto fund. So you're still seeing a lot of, you know, corporate, institutional, mainstream money coming in broadly into the sector across a range of different uh, vehicles. And I think that ultimately supports it. We've seen uh, a sort of division between Ethereum and Bitcoin in terms of um, in terms of performance this year. I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, it's it's interesting. One said they do tend to, to move in lockstep to a large extent, but there's a there's actually the, this sort of pattern in which you know one leads and then the other one follows. Uh, you know, Ethereum is a different value proposition. You know, it, it is not to be thought of, I don't think, as a competitor to Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of people do think that, and a lot of people inside crypto do think that. But, you know, Ethereum really is a, it's a form of fuel. It's, it, is a, uh, it is a commodity that is used to run the Ethereum network, which, uh, you know, as people should understand, is a smart contract-based system for decentralized applications, whereas Bitcoin is thought of purely as an asset to hold, an asset to use as a form of digital gold. So they're, they're quite separate. Um, I think the, the market tends to lump them all in together, um, and then maybe at different times we'll sort of favor one over the other, depending on what the mood is. But at the end of the day, you know, they, they do tend to have uh, uh, patterns that, that, that move them, you know, over time, at least in lockstep. And, it, you know, it seems like the regulation story is what continues to derail Bitcoin, whether you're talking about 2015 when it was Janet Yellen or fast forward to now where it's not just the U.S. but China cracking down as well. When do countries, when are they able to craft their policy around cryptocurrency so that can become less of a risk? Where do you think we're at? Oh, look, it's still a long, uh, long game, and not only because of the fact that it's, it's, you know, Bitcoin is just one part of this, but there's so many other components to it, of course. We've seen, you know, the emergence of stable coins, which feed into the crypto network. We've got the emergence of decentralized exchanges now that are uh, a challenge to the existing centralized exchanges. And so governments have just got their head around how they will regulate those. And now there's a decentralized version of that. This concept called DeFi uh, feeds into this as well. So, I look, I think there's, it, it's an ever fast moving, changing, uh, highly innovative sector. And, and as a result, you're going to find governments everywhere are constantly scrambling to keep up. So I don't know that we'll ever get to the point that, uh, you know, regulatory risk or, or, or the idea of, you know, the uncertainty around regulation is, is, is going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an inherent part of what's going on. Yeah, that regulatory risk is something that investors uh, at least have to kind of get used to, if you will, when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Michael, thanks for providing your insight today. Michael Casey. Coming up, your big money mover stocks looking to make a splash to start the week. Plus, a cruise ship setting sail from a U.S. port for the first time in more than 15 months. We'll t- talk about the future of the pandemic-plagued industry when Worldwide Exchange is right back. It is time for your big money movers Four stock stories of the morning. Starting with Boeing, the FAA is reportedly telling the company the updated version of its 777 jet 
likely won't be ready for certification until late 2023. The agency sent Boeing a letter in May warning it may require more test flights. It noted a number of concerns, including problems with the flight control software, which abruptly pitched the plane without the pilot's input during a test flight in December. Tesla is recalling about 285,000 vehicles in China. Authorities say the cruise control can be activated accidentally, causing the cars to suddenly accelerate. China's market regulator says the recall covers Model 3 and Model Y vehicles, with the majority built in China. Tesla will fix the cruise control with a remote software update. Shares are flat at the hour. Johnson & Johnson will pay $263 million to settle opioid claims in New York State and its two largest counties. The settlement removes the company from a trial scheduled to begin tomorrow, where several big opioid makers and distributors are defendants. J&J did not admit liability or wrongdoing, but the settlement calls for the company to stop selling the painkillers nationwide. Finally, shares of Burberry are slumping in Europe. CEO Marco Gobetti says he's leaving the luxury goods maker at the end of the year to take on the same role at Ferragamo in his native Italy. The stock, Burberry, down 6% in Europe. Turning to travel, cruise lines have gained this year on the bet that when the CDC gives the cruise industry the go-ahead, travelers will be ready to sail again. Royal Caribbean Celebrity Edge set sail over the weekend, a seven-day cruise to the Caribbean and Mexico. Here's what Royal Caribbean CEO Richard Fain told me about demand so far. We normally book months in advance, so I see the... Uh, untapped demand, the people who are really anxious to get back at the sea, I see that as very strong. In fact, we're overwhelmed with people calling, clearly want to get back and going to normalcy. But with the first sailings expected to restrict the number of passengers, how could that impact the cruise line's path to profitability? I'm joined by James Hardiman, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. James, thank you for joining me today. You know, that Celebrity Edge, I was on that ship on Friday. It will run, it is running at 40% capacity, uh, which we know it needs to be much higher in order for these ships to break even and to be profitable. So I'm wondering how quickly do you think these cruise lines can add more passengers and still abide by CDC rules? Yeah, well, it's there's a dual path that I think uh, the cruise industry is going to take in terms of getting back on the water. Uh, ships like Celebrity Edge, um, where the vast, vast majority of passengers and certainly 100% of the crew were vaccinated, um, in very short order, I think those cruises are going to get back to, to 100% and, and as is industry standard, 100% plus uh, capacity. There are other ships where uh, vaccinations are not required or, or do not surpass uh, what is a 95% hurdle of vaccinations, uh, where I think that that capacity ramp is going to take uh, somewhat longer. But I would expect uh, by the end of this year, probably first quarter next year, I think things are going to be getting closer to to what we would think of as normality in the cruise industry. That's interesting. Uh, you know, we spoke to a number of passengers, all of them very eager to get on board, but some of them also expressed their, not I wouldn't say concern, but the fact that they were just going to be a little bit more cautious on board. They weren't going to partake in all of the activities. Some of them said they were just going to stay on the cruise for seven days. They would not disembark and uh, participate in any of those excursions that the cruise line was offering. Does that mean over time these cruise lines will be making less money per passenger on board? In the very near term, right? I, mean, I think all of us, uh, as as we get back to um, what our lot, the closest thing is, as we can think of is what our lives look like pre-pandemic. 
I think it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, I think people are going to slowly uh, uh, dip that initial toe into the water. Um, but I think over time, we're, we're going to ultimately get back to, to, to how we used to live. The cruise industry, um, if you remember, was really ground zero of the pandemic. And, and there, were, there were these fears that um, not only would you, would you catch the, the virus on board, uh, but that you would ultimately be stranded. I think the industry has done a great job um, of, of um, I think, hitting a lot of those fears head on, uh, making passengers feel comfortable. Uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. Well, what would you say is the top pick in the cruise line sector? Norwegian cruise, uh, Carnival, Royal Caribbean. We also have Virgin Voyages, Richard Branson's cruise line, set to go public sometime later this year. Yeah, Royal's been our favorite for a variety of reasons. They had a, a lot of good momentum heading into the pandemic. I think there's all the reason in the world to believe that they'll have the best coming out. Um, their balance sheets have also been... Um, have held up, I think, better than the other two. As you can imagine, these companies have had to take on significant amounts of debt and equity. Um, Royal, um, the least so. Uh, and so as, as we exit, um, you know, the amount of leverage, uh, the amount of, the amount of dilution that shareholders are seeing. Uh, substantially less at Royal versus uh, certainly Carnival and, and Norwegian. Yeah, that's why it's all about this recovery. We're going to be watching these first couple sailings very closely to see whether it's smooth sailings or choppy waters. Uh, James, thank you for joining us today. James Hardiman. Thanks for having me. On deck, Alliance Bernstein is here with two ESG picks that could be perfect for the environmentally con- conscious investor. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back. To D.C. and the ongoing battle over the SALT tax, states like New York and New Jersey still struggling for relief. And a closer look at the new numbers suggest the caps put in place by President Trump are here to stay. Robert Frank joins us with that story. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Seema. Well, high earners in high-tech states cheer the news that Bernie Sanders is supporting SALT relief. But the amount in his budget, that would be $120 billion over five years, is less than a third of the cost of a full repeal of the SALT cap, which means that he's only talking about a partial repeal. repeal. Now, initially, Democrats were talking about an increase in the current cap of $10,000 to maybe $20,000 or $25,000. But now, experts in D.C. tell me the focus has shifted to an income test. That would basically eliminate the cap for those making less than $400,000, but you would keep the full cap for those who make more than $400,000. That would answer the criticism that a repeal of the salt cap would only benefit the wealthy. It also creates a new kind of income cliff. Say a New York taxpayer had $399,000 in taxable income and $45,000 in state and local taxes. Now, they could deduct the $45,000 at their tax rate because they're just below that income threshold. Now, if they earn $401,000, so only $2,000 more, they would be subject to the cap and they would have to pay $12,000 a year more in taxes. Now, an income test could create, because of that, some strange incentives to keep your reported income below $400,000. Now, Democrats from high-tax states continue to press for a full repeal, and nothing is decided here. But since most of the benefits of a full repeal go to the top 1%, 
it looks increasingly unlikely that the cap will be fully eliminated, more likely that we get either some kind of income test or perhaps an increase in the cap. Seema? Pouring the salt relief. And, you know, how important or significant is it that Bernie Sanders is supporting this salt relief? And how far are we from any big changes to the tax code? We've been talking about it for a while. When should we actually expect some changes? It was really important that Bernie Sanders included some salt relief. And again, there were these headlines that said Bernie Sanders supports salt elimination. Everyone thought, okay, this is a sign that some of these Congress people like Tom Suozzi and Josh Gottheimer, who were saying they wouldn't support any bill unless there was salt relief, had finally gotten their way. But then you dig into these numbers and it's really only a third of the total cost of repeal. So it is only partial. And I think, again, 57% of the benefits of a full repeal of salt go to the top 1%. And in today's Democratic Party, look, to see Bernie Sanders support any reform was big, but unlikely that they would support a full elimination, which, again, so much of that would just go to the top 1%. Important context there. Robert, thank you. Have a great day, Robert Frank. Stocks are coming off another positive week with the S&P 500 posting its best performance since February. Small caps are on pace for their longest monthly winning streak on record going back to 1987. It is another busy week ahead as we round out the month and the second quarter. There's a whole host of economic data where reports on home prices, consumer confidence, manufacturing, hiring in the private sector, jobless claims, factory orders. But it is all topped off by the non-farm payrolls report on Friday. Let's talk more about that and much more with Valerie Grant, Senior Portfolio Manager for Responsible Investing at Allianz Bernstein. Valerie, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. I know you focus a lot on ESG and it is all the rage. So I want to start the conversation there. I was just looking at some of the clean energy ETFs. And Valerie, they are down about 30 percent this year. Compare that to big oil and energy producers, which are leading the S&P, right? They're up about 45 percent on average. I guess the popular explanation for this strange nexus is this whole supply demand equation and inflation. But what's your take? Well, my take is that for some of the uh, renewable energy stocks, um, they are traditionally categorized as growth stocks, right? And we know that there's been a bit of a sell-off or a significant sell-off in many of, of the growth stocks, uh, not just in renewables and in clean energy, but in other sectors uh, of the market as well. So I think some of this is related more to the factor exposure that you get by investing in renewables and renewable energy. But I think over the long term, those those stocks um, should, in general, uh, recover. Um, in terms of oil prices, uh, energy prices have definitely gone up, uh, really, I think, as a function of the recovery in the economy and the surge in demand. So uh, we know that there's a tight correlation between energy uh, prices for, the, for stocks and the underlying price of, of, of oil, and that's what we've seen there. Uh, whether that will uh, persist, I think, is, is a different matter because we know over the long term, uh, uh, the energy stocks um, have underperformed uh, significantly. The highlight of this week's economic calendar will be that job support on Friday, Valerie. Over the weekend, Republican Senator Pat Toomey telling the Financial Times, he, of course, has been a leading critic of the Fed's ultra-easy monetary policy. Uh, he says the Fed risks being behind the curve. Uh, what's your take, and do you agree? 
in terms of the Fed being behind the curve, meaning responding perhaps too late to inflationary pressures, right. I assume that's what you're what what you're exactly. implying. I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that um, much of the inflationary pressure that we're seeing is likely to be transient. We really are confronting a, a challenging situation now with the reopening of the economy happening at a very uneven level. So we have a lot of supply chain bottlenecks. We have a lot of um, shifts in demand and a mismatch in demand and supply that I think over time will likely abate. Now, the one area that I think uh, will, will persist in terms of inflation is wage inflation. Um, that's a, a consistent uh, level of feedback that I'm hearing from CEOs and CFOs of companies. It is taking more to get companies on board and back into the labor force. And quite frankly, there were probably companies who were over-earning, so to speak, who are going to have to make some adjustments to their compensation and benefits in order to attract employees. I, hear, I see here that GM is one of your uh, top picks in your portfolio. Um, why is that? GM is an interesting company in terms of how they are, are looking at the future of electronic vehicles and really leaning in heavily to that in terms of where they're investing capital and the way that they're thinking about uh, developing automobiles for the future. So that's one. Um, secondly, they're also focused on safety. And they have a very strong competitive positioning in the um, SUV and crossover market, which is the most profitable market in the automotive industry. And so I think while uh, you know, remarkably, I think several years ago, people would have counted GM out. Uh, they seem to have really gotten back up off the mat, so to speak, uh, particularly given their commitment um, to electronic vehicles. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how uh, GM is up 45 percent this year, actually outperforming Tesla. Do you think that outperformance continues? Well, well, certainly we'll see. I think that there is room for multiple players in this uh, secular trend within the global automotive industry. Um, you've, we've seen strong performance from Ford as well. I think that companies that are, are wise are, are investing heavily in this area. Tesla is more of a growth stock. So again, remember I mentioned that the, the growth stocks have suffered a bit more recently, whereas GM is traditionally has more value characteristics. So it's performing accordingly. Within technology, where would you put your money? Within technology, we have a, a wide range of exposure um, to a lot of the large technology companies, um, as well as software and services. Uh, one of our core holdings, as an example, is PayPal, uh, because PayPal really enables small and medium-sized businesses to participate in the shift to electronic commerce. And, and that's actually worked out quite well for us. But that's just an, an example of many of the holdings we have in the technology sector. PayPal uh, down just half a percent here in pre-market. But yes, it's had a strong year, up 23 percent. Perhaps part of that has to do with Bitcoin. Valerie, we will leave the conversation there. Thank you for joining us, Valerie Grant of Alliance. And a quick check for pre-market trade here. The Nasdaq higher by around 44 points on this Monday morning. That does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. I'm Seema Modi. Thank you for joining me. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.